Good morning. You guys uh, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be starting in 24. I'm sorry, 27. And this is what it says. It says, Now Jesus and his disciples went out uh, to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, uh, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days raise again. And he spoke these words openly. But then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked uh, at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. And when he had called uh, to the I'm sorry, when he had called uh, the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever denies, uh, for whoever uh, desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man? Uh, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will uh, be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death, Till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time, and I thank you that, uh, that your desire is that all men come to repentance. And I pray this morning that, uh, as Jackie said, that you would draw all men to yourself, Father. We've come uh, today to uh, hear your word and to, to know more about the God who created us. And so I just pray that... Uh, as we open up your word this morning, that um, you would speak to us, Father, that we would feel your presence, that we would uh, uh, taste the, the sweetness uh, of who you are. And I, I know today uh, is the day of salvation, Father. I know that uh, right now is the, the tilling and the planting. And so, Father, I pray that your word be planted in our heart. And I just thank you in Jesus' name. Man, we live in exciting times. I'm excited about uh, what's going on in our world, the things that are happening for a lot of different reasons. But um, a couple of them is the scripture lays out for us that, that when you see these things begin to happen, lift up your eyes. Your redemption draws nigh. Your redemption draws near. And as I want to live my life looking for the glorious appearing of my great God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ, uh, that's not an excuse for me to disconnect from the culture around me. What it is, is a call for me to get busy. Because what we see going on right now is a world plunging off a cliff into just eternal separation from God. And, and so my, my heart and soul belongs to the Lord. He's my treasure. He's the most important thing in my life. I want to follow him. I want to glorify him in all I do. But I don't want to disconnect from what's happening around me and say, well, I got myself covered. I'm good. And sometimes I think that's how we sound when we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Because the heart isn't the heart that says, man, I've been out planting seed and I'm looking for that harvest. So come Lord Jesus. But in a lot of ways, it's I don't want to have to deal with the chaos around me anymore. So come Lord Jesus. And I think it's okay. That's natural. I'm not saying we should stop being human beings. But I am suggesting that as we come to and we look at what's going on in our world and the things that are being said and the things that are being done and the things that are being passed. Look, you're, you are never going to legislate morality in the heart of mankind anyway. So, so losing those concepts and, and those things, don't sweat that part. How do, we, how do we change the morality of our nation? How do we change the heart of man when Jesus Christ takes up residence in someone's heart? It changes. And so Jesus came, and when he left, it's interesting because we're going to look at Scripture today, and we're going to see Jesus tell everybody, well, shh, don't tell anyone. We see that a lot as, as his earthly ministry is going on. Shh, don't tell anyone. Shh, don't tell anyone. But there was a day when Jesus said, now go tell everyone. When their eyes are fully open, when their understanding is in the Holy Spirit is upon them, now they are equipped to be the men and women God's asking them to be. You and I, we have that equipping now. We have that equipping now. And so we are to go. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Go. Take the gospel to anyone who will hear. And as we see the time draw nigh. Ah, who knows how long we have. We have however long God says. But until that day when he comes, I would say one of the ways, one of the chief ways that we can love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and spirit is to keep his commandment. And we can think about a lot of commandments God asks us to keep, but I would just refer you to one. Go, therefore, and tell. Go share the love of Christ. Don't change the gospel to fit what people want to hear. The gospel will change the hearts of those who receive it. The word of God changes us from the inside out, not the other way around. We don't change it because we don't like it. We stand firm on it. And as we come this morning to the section of scripture, you remember last week we, we talked about this same section of scripture. So some of it we're going to go over quickly. But the idea, remember, we had a man who was blind. And Jesus healed him in stages, right? Remember, he he. he Healed him, and he asked him, what do you see? And he said, oh, I see men like trees walking. He couldn't see clearly. And then we see Jesus uh, complete the healing, and the man's able to see clearly. It's the only time we see a miracle like this throughout the scriptures. It's proof positive that the people, uh, the disciples would never make that up. It happened. 
just like that. And it happened for a purpose, because if we work our way through this chapter, we see the concept, right, of people not quite understanding fully. And that it's through a touch of Jesus Christ that we're able to fully comprehend, to understand. When Jesus touches our life, it's, it's, it's indicative of our walk with Him, right? When we first get saved, do we understand everything? But there's a, a progress of having our eyes opened, isn't there? Until we see clearly, when we see Him face to face. The Bible says, now I see through a glass dimly, then I will see face to face. So there's a, a progress going through. And we see the same progress with, the, with the, the disciples, don't we? Because the very next thing he moves into after that healing is the two most uh, important questions we could ever discuss, we could ever go over. Let's take a look at beginning at verse 27. So Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. On the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? What's, what is the thing that, that, that those who are not part of us say about me? And as Jesus asks that, it's interesting because we, we see the answers, right? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others one of the prophets. Each one of those is, a, is a, like a digression through, through from, from more important to, to perhaps least important. But the point is, all of them take the power and majesty of Christ away. They make him something else. And really, when we go into our world and we, and we are, are engaging our world today, their views are no different, are they? You've got to see the picture because you come to Caesarea Philippi and you're at, at uh, what's called Banias or where the Temple of Pan was. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River where the Jordan River comes right out of the cliffside. If we're planning an Israel trip. I, I, I don't know where my wife is, so I'm not sure the dates. But we're planning a trip to Israel. And if you go with us... You'll stand there, and you'll see the headwaters of the Jordan River come out, and we'll talk about this scripture right here. We'll talk about this scripture where Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Standing before all these temples of false gods, Jesus asked that question. But the more important question comes immediately afterwards. As they respond to him, he said, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others one of the prophets. So he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now in the Greek, the word you is emphatic. It's like saying this, but you, who do you say that I am? Because really when we come to our relationship with Jesus Christ, guys, it's personal. It's not corporate. It's not, it's not familial. It's not something where my, well, my mom and dad are, are believe in Jesus, so I was born a Christian. It doesn't work that way. We all have to, ha have to answer that question. But you... Individually, who do you say that I am? Who do you say? So he, he says, the scripture tells us, he said to them, Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. And he strictly warned them that they should tell no one. <clears throat> As we look at the gospels, we can get a, a fuller picture of what's taking place at this time. But one of the things I want to I pull to is, a, is, is looking at Peter's answer in the three Gospels. So here he says, you are the Christ. Definite article. Hoy Christos. He says, you are not a Christ. You are not a Messiah. You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah promised through Scripture. You are the one that the <coughs> Old Testament prophets 
told us was coming. Now we know, along with that idea, Peter has his own concept of what Christ means. What the Messiah means. And there's reason why he feels that way. When you look at many of the messianic uh, prophecies, especially the ones that, that have the Messiah, the words the Messiah involved, it's always victorious. When we go to the suffering servant uh, prophecies, that those were things that they would read and they go, we don't know how that fits. Is there any scripture that we do that with? We don't know how that fits, but, but we know that the Messiah is going to be victorious and he's going to bring victory. So this is what, this is what Peter is, is focused on. We know, we know the things that Messiah is going to do. In Luke chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, it says, He said to them, this is Peter's answer, uh, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. The Christ ekthios, ekthios. The Messiah, the anointed one who comes out from God. Who has his, his uh, uh, being in God. Who comes from God. So it's this, this is something we'll see as we work our way through the scripture. That this is the plan. God the Father. This was part of uh, his re, uh, redemption plan all along. So not only the Christ. But the Christ of God. Who, who has his being out from. Comes forth out from God. In Matthew chapter 16. Verses 15 and 16. It said. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered. You are the Christ. The Son of the living God. What that phrase, the son of the living God, means that you are one in nature with God. You are God in the flesh. So if we look at them all, you have the Messiah, not a Messiah, the absolute anointed one spoken of by the, by the prophecies. You have him coming forth out from God, and you have him being of the exact nature of God. And we look at all three uh, we, we get a, a full and complete view of the things that Peter said when he makes his proclamation. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus says, it's by this proclamation, upon this rock, this proclamation that you have made, I'm going to build my church. The church still today is built on this concept. You believe Jesus is the Christ. The Christ. Not a Christ. The Christ. The Son of the living God. God in flesh. Do you believe that? Is he a part of your life? Has he been brought into your life? This is the same thing. Jesus said, this is how my church will be built. On this concept, on this statement, on this reality, on this truth. And as Peter looks at it, think about all the things he's thinking. You're the Messiah, so you're the one who's going to defeat evil. You, the Messiah, is going to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.16, the proto-evangelicum, the first mention of the gospel, the crushing of the head of the serpent. So he's saying, you're going, to, you're going to defeat evil. You're the one who's going to rule forever. Your kingdom will never end. This is a proclamation of Messiah. You're the one who is sent from the Father, and you are one with the Father. All these things are, are flooding through Peter's mind as he, as he makes this proclamation. And then immediately afterwards he says, don't, don't tell anyone. And the reason that Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone, is because they have an imperfect understanding of Messiah currently. Think about all the things they're going to see moving forward. All the things they're going to see. The crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection... The empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the sending out. 
All of those things are yet on their horizon. So Jesus said, you're not really ready to take the message of Messiah beyond this place. So don't tell anyone. And then he teaches them. Right here in the, in the, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark breaks apart. The first part was, who is Jesus? And the second part is, what, what did he come to do? And the first part is ending. They, they just answered the question, who is Jesus? You are the Christ, son of the living God, sent from God. You are the Messiah. And now Jesus begins to teach what he came to do. Look at the next section in verse 31. So he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. One of the things that kind of blows my mind when I look at that scripture is the word must. Beyond question, this has to happen. This has to happen. This is something that is set. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Now in the minds of good Jewish people, you say the Son of Man, their minds are going to go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 talks about the, the point in time when the Son of Man is lifted up and, and begins to reign victorious. Begins to reign victorious as, as king. But now he's saying, the Son of Man, what you don't understand about the Son of Man is he is also the suffering servant. That in order for the Son of Man to be exalted and lifted up and draw men to himself, he must be placed upon the cross. He must be put on the, the, the cross to become a curse for you and I. So that you and I can become the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So he must, he must be elevated. He must be placed in this place. So he has to suffer fulfilling those roles. But also it says, he will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. Every time Jesus talks about the passion, every time he talks about the crucifixion, he never leaves the crucifixion out there without talking about rising again. But have you ever had somebody tell you something you didn't want to hear, and you only hear so much? You hear the part, and you think, ah, okay, I hear that, but I'm so irritated by what I just heard, I can't hear the rest. And really, that's exactly what happens to Peter when we look at this. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus talks about where the Messiah is going. What's going to occur in the Messiah's life. So we, as we look at it, I just don't want you to miss Peter. He's thinking, you're the Messiah. You're the king. You're the one who's come to reign and rule on the throne of David to set up your kingdom. Uh, uh, everything that's wrong is going to be made right. Evil is going to be put down. All these things are going to have the, 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 the ruling part of our nation is going to have to accept you so that you can sit on the throne. But what did Jesus say? He said, the ruling part of the nation is going to reject me. The scribes and the Pharisees, the ruling part of the nation of Israel is going to reject me. And they're going to murder me. That's the word kill. They're going to murder me. They didn't just kill him. They didn't just put him to death. Do you remember what Pilate said? Pilate stood before the people and said, why? He is an innocent man. They're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. 
Pilate says, he is innocent. So you have a declaration by the Roman procreator of that area declaring his innocence moments before putting him to death. What do you call killing an innocent man? That's murder. So these three, these, this group that should receive and accept Messiah, they're going to reject and they're going to commit murder. Now, in Peter's mind, this has been like a, 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 a whole lot of bad news. He just had this incredible thing, right? In fact, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, flesh and blood hasn't uh, uh, revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who's in heaven has revealed this to you. So he's, he's had a revelation of God, the opening of his eyes to understand who Jesus is. He's excited about all those things, but now all this bad news. But it means this, and it means this, and it means this. I'm headed to the cross. I'm going to die. The chief priests, they're going to kill me. So when he says the phrase, and after three days I'll rise again, I don't know that Peter heard it at all. He certainly doesn't mention it in his rebuke. This is one of three times in the Gospel of Mark that this is mentioned. Mark chapter 3, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9 verse 31 Jesus says this again. Listen, he says, For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. In Mark chapter 10, verse 33 through 34, he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. <clears throat> they will condemn him to death. And deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And they will mock him. And scourge him. And spit on him. And kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Over and over again he's laying out the purpose of Messiah. What is it that Messiah is going to do? He's going to die. His death is intentional. He knows they're going to kill him. And he goes anyway. He knows because it's for this purpose that he came into the world. So that he might take our brokenness, our stain, our sin, and wash it away by the power of his blood. His death will be murder, and the murderers are named. The chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And fourth, he will rise again. He will rise again. Death has no hold over him. His death is appointed. His resurrection is appointed. But what we're not told in all these sections is why. Why is he going to die? And if while we're sitting there in, in Mark chapter 10, just look down to verse 45 in Mark chapter 10. And we, we begin to see a bit of the answer to why it is that Jesus is going to die. In Mark 10, 45 it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life a ransom for many. Now, Paul writes about the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 and 6 it says, For there is one God, one mediator between God and man. Someone who is able to put his hand in the hand of God. That requires divinity. Someone who is able to put his hand in the hand of man. That requires humanity. One mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He says there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who did what? 
who gave himself a ransom for who? For all. Oh, that's weird, isn't it? That in Mark it said he gave himself a ransom for many. Paul says in Timothy he gave himself a ransom for all. Which do you think it is? Oh, it's both. It's both. How is it both? It's like this. When Jesus Christ dies on the cross, his blood is sufficient to ransom all mankind. There's no lack in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ and its ability to save. The blood of Jesus Christ is able to save all men everywhere. Who does it save? Those who call upon his name. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, what's the scripture say? Shall be saved. Is that everyone? It's not. It's enough for everyone. But it's only efficient, efficacious. It only does the work on him who repents and believes. On the one who comes to Christ. So it, it is the ransom for many, those who believe. But it is sufficient for all. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son, right? And his sacrifice is enough to ransom the whole world. But still sometimes people go, I don't understand the concept. What's the concept for ransom? Why is there a need of ransom? It's flipping your Bibles over to Psalm 49. Because Psalm 49 gives us a, a really neat uh, handle that we can grab a hold of to comprehend the idea of ransom. Ransom means that we are held captive by a debt we cannot pay. We cannot pay. We're unable. In fact, it says in Psalm 49, verse 7, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly. And it shall cease forever. The redemption of man, the ransom for man is costly. Man cannot pay it himself. Psalm 49 declares it. But here's the good news. First Psalm tells us that you can't pay it for your brother. And you can't pay the ransom for yourself. It's too costly. You don't have enough. But if we go down to verse 15 of Psalm 49, it says, But... God. I always have loved that phrase. It's a beautiful phrase in Ephesians. It's actually a beautiful phrase every time you run into it. But God, in strong contrast to your inability to pay, it says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. He will redeem me. How's he redeem me? God pays the ransom. God pays the ransom, the debt that is owed, our brokenness, our stain, our sin, that which disqualifies us from a relationship with Almighty God. A lot of people look at that and they say, well, I don't know that's really fair that God holds me responsible for something I never did. But now I'm born in sin. I'm born separated from God. Well, I don't know that I agree with that argumentation, but let me just carry it through this way. So God became sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God. So God came and bore upon himself the curse so that you might have life and life more abundantly. But God made a way to ransom you, to ransom me, to pay the price. And that was fulfilled in the life of the, of the Messiah. The Messiah 
was come to do that work. The God-man, the one who could put his hand in both to bridge the gap between one mediator to bring the two together. This was the work of Messiah, and this was done as a result of God's plan and purpose. God came. It was God the Father. He, it's His plan. <clears throat> it's His concept. We see it in the next verses of how He would redeem mankind. And the Son comes to fulfill the will of the Father. Look at verse 32 in Mark chapter 8. For He spoke his, this word openly. So Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him. It's interesting because that word rebuke that Peter uses is the same word Jesus used when He rebuked the demons. Strong word. Strong word. You probably don't want to use that word with God at any time. It's hard to say, yes, Lord, but. Because if you say the word but, you erase everything that went before it. So we either say, yes, Lord, or we say, but. But you can't do both. And so Peter has an idea. And Peter has a a concept of how God should move and how God should work. And the reality of who Peter is, is revealed as a result of his relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't you see that? Peter doesn't really know about himself. Peter doesn't really know necessarily what he thinks or what he should be. But when he's in the presence of Christ, the things in his life that are off, they just blossom. Why do you think that happens? God allows those things to blossom. He allows us to do the dumb things, say the dumb things, be lame, so that suddenly the Holy Spirit can say to us, what did you just say? And you go, yeah, that's not very good. I should probably get that out of my life. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus is going to tell Peter, right? He rebukes him with this strong word of rebuke. He brings it down upon him. And And then Jesus turned around, looked at the disciples, and he rebuked Peter. So Peter's over here, he kind of draws Jesus away, kind of picturing it in my mind, and, and Peter rebukes him, <clears throat> and Jesus turns away from him to the disciples and rebukes Peter. He wants the disciples to understand the same thing. You see, they don't see clearly yet. They don't understand all that Messiah is doing. They see men like trees walking. Because the Holy Spirit hasn't come to open their eyes. So, so they don't fully uh, grasp what it is that's being said. So he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. And as he turns, just see it. As Peter's there talking to him, he turns his back to Peter, gives an object lesson to the disciples. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of God in mind. He declares, get behind me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. It showed, Peter's relationship with Christ showed where he was out of balance, his self, his idea of self, and God's idea, God's plan. And that's going to that's gonna trickle down as we consider to work our, or continue to work our way through. But he puts Peter behind him, gives an object lesson, a lesson that they can see, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the things of God. Whenever we come to Christ, we can come to Christ intellectually, where we say, yes, I know that he lived, I believe he's God, I believe, I, I believe all these things about him, but I, I have a head knowledge. But I'm constantly trying to lead him 
where he should go. I'm constantly trying to change his direction rather than allowing him to change me. And Jesus is going to discuss that in the very next verse. He says, this is God's plan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but you're mindful of the things of men. You want what you want the way you want it. And really, there's a better way to describe our nation than that right now. You tell me what it is. Because what our nation has done, despite, you say whatever you want to about the ruling, I don't care about that. What the ruling has really said is we will not have you reign over us. Your word will not be the standard of morality in this place. You are out and we are in. They do not have in their mind the things of God but the things of men. It's been a long process. They've been working on this process since 1933. 1933, the Humanist Manifesto came out and mankind proclaimed, there is no God, we must save ourselves. And so we just simply today find ourselves closer to that, that there's, the standard is no longer the Word of God. And once you remove that, once you took the Word of God, that's not the standard, then, then how are you going to decide right from wrong? If you take the word of God out and the word of God no longer decides what's right and wrong, now, popular opinion, we, we saw past not a, a uh, decision for equality in marriage, we saw a redefinition of marriage. There's already equality. They redefined. They took the, the definition from the word of God, scratched that out, moved that, we redefined that. And in redefining it, there will have to be more redefining, won't there? Don't we see Congress and everybody still arguing over what the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights and our Constitution says, don't they? Still trying to figure out, and they're going to do the same thing with this. And what's that mean? The floodgates open up. What do we call that? It's very simple. It's the judgment of God. It's the judgment, judgment of God is not always a big earthquake. Sometimes the judgment of God is saying, look, uh, I'm going to turn you over. I'm going to turn you over. What happens when God turns a nation over? I'll tell you what I hope happens. God's people rise up. God's people go forth and share the good news of the gospel. And maybe the world hates you for it. Hallelujah if they hate you for it. But God loves you for it. Which is more important. So to go and to share the truth. Here's the truth. Here's the real standard. The only way we can know anything is if we stand on the standard of God's word. God's word is the standard so that you and I, so that we can know those things which please and honor God. And right now Peter finds himself on the backside. I wanted something that didn't honor God. I want something that goes against what God's going to say. Well then in verse 34, look what Jesus does. It says, when he had called the people to himself. So now he calls out. He's, he's bringing the people, not just the disciples that were around him. But all the people who are in the area. And he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. Man, that's an incredible thing. I, I just want you to kind of think about it. Jesus hadn't said anything like this before, the first time. So anyone who wants to come after me, the idea of that is anybody who wants to follow. Anybody who's with me, if you're with me, here's how we'll know. 
Here's another way to answer the question. Are you the many? Are you of the people for whom the blood of Jesus Christ is efficient? Do you, have you placed your, your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you received that gift which he offers? How do I know if I'm the many? Jesus says, if you come after me, here's what it looks like. First, a denial of self. Man, if, if, if that's not one of the more necessary things in our world today, you tell me what it is. Because all around the world we have people arguing about, this is how God made me. I'll, I'll even give that to you. Okay, God made you that way. But then he said, deny yourself. Deny yourself. And it's not just for them, it's for you and me. Are you willing to deny yourself? Or is your rights, your desires, your wants, the top of the list? Because the best way to deal with that with self in our life is to allow Jesus Christ to be our ultimate treasure. That thing which I want more than anything else to make him my desire to bring all thoughts captive in Christ so that my desires are his desires so that my what I see I want to see through his eyes I want to hear through his ears if I'm supposed to be offended I want to be offended because he said I should be offended if I'm going to respond I want to respond because it's him his spirit moving in me and guiding me that way he needs to be preeminent first I want him to be first. So, so I got to deny myself. There's a lot of stuff I want. My, my wanter wants constantly. If you got a, a pill I could take and make my wanter go away, I'd take the pill. Take the blue pill, Jackie. The blue pill. Take the blue pill and, and, and all those desires go away. But the reality is there isn't one of those. What does it require of me then? Look, I don't want to put some trip on you to think, man, I, don't, I can't do that. <laughs> it requires you to live every moment of your life in surrender to Christ. Because every moment I have something else rise up against him. And when it happens, the voice of Christ isn't condemning me. Jackie, you big knucklehead, I'm so tired of telling you this over and over again. No, the voice of Christ is saying, hey, hey, look, yourself is rising up. And what's he want me to do? Take it captive. Take it captive. In the book of Romans, it talks about the, the seat of our desires in, in rebellion against God. And that we're to allow Christ to sit on that throne. That he's king over my desires. And so when my desires rise up, what do I do? I repent. Oh, Lord, sorry, this desire, this, this is not of you. Forgive me. Sit on the throne of my desires. And if i got to do that 10,000 times a day, hallelujah. That's what it means to walk with Christ. So we do. He says, let us, let them, the one who would follow after me, let him, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. The word follow is a word, akolithia. It means to take the same road as another does. It's not a picture of following behind, but walking with someone. So when Jesus says, come and follow me, what he's saying is, come and go with me where I'm going. Come and go where I'm going. Not necessarily following behind, but walking with me. 
Come walk with me. But he tells us where he's going, doesn't he? Let him deny himself. Do what? What's the next phrase? Take up his cross. That was not, by the way, a, a, a little piece of jewelry people wore back then. If you were walking into a town, just on the outskirts of town, there would be crosses piled up with bodies nailed to them. All these people. What did that, what did that stand for? All these people rebellious against against the, the nation, the people, the rulers, the Romans, what have you, was the implement of death. It was disgusting. It was something you would stay as far away from as you could. But Jesus said, take your cross. Come with me. Where am I going? To Golgotha. What happens at Golgotha? It's there at Golgotha where you will be crucified with me. Because where you are crucified with me, that's the place where the, where the self dies. For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live now, I live by the power of the Holy One of God given for me. To be able to walk with Him. It it requires me to go where He's going. To follow Him. To a place at a cross. To die to myself. And then to be raised again in the new life. Isn't that what what, what baptism's all about? Next week when we have baptisms up in the the mountains, when we did family camp and we have baptisms, what did it signify? Going below the water, dying to myself. Coming up out of the water, being raised a new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has ordained that I should walk in them. To follow him. To follow him. All of this Jesus is laying out for his disciples that they might understand. And as we look at the 35, 36, 37, 38... I call these the the three fours and the or. In some translations, you can call them the four fours. But uh, in the New King James, it's three fours and an or. And here's what the three fours and the or say. Let's look at it. It says first, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The word here for life is not the, the bios, it's not the, 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 your, your ability to be alive. It is the psyche. It is yourself. If you want to hold on to yourself and who you are, you want to hold on to, to you, those sins you feel like you've been born with. Well, we're all born in sin. You want to hold on to self, then you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it all. But look at what Jesus says. He says, but whoever loses his life, his self, for my sake and the gospels, will save it. Because we, it's, it's not about how I am. There are things in my life had to die. There are still things in my life have to die. Do you have anything in your life that's got to die? Man, I got stuff in my life that's got to die. I got, I got to die to... Attitudes. I gotta die to attitudes. I gotta die to getting uh, irritated. <laughs> uh, I gotta die to being rude to my wife. I gotta die to a myriad of things. And one day, if I gain a victory in those areas, there will be a whole new batch. <laughs> so, if you ever thought, "Well, eventually I'll die enough, I won't have to die no more," I don't know about that. <clears throat> but I want, to den- I want to deny myself. I don't want to live to save 
my, my, my personality. Because really, we don't really know who we are. And your, your ability to know who you are is directly correlated to your ability to be uh, united with Christ. Because only when I'm united with Christ will I really know who I am. I'm constantly looking for myself in a variety of other things. And so is the world. The world looks for, for satisfaction in a million different places. In a million different ways. But we don't know ourselves until we know Christ. That's what he's saying. When you know me, for my sake in the gospel, then you'll know yourself. Then the real me. Because the real me is not the guy who's rude. The real me is not the guy who has all those quirks. The real me is something in the, in the apple of the eye of my creator. And when he looks at me, he sees it. So he... I don't want to live my life trying to hold on to that which God's trying to cut out. Let that stuff go. Let go of my safety. Let go of all those things so that I might truly find who I am. Then we have the next four. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? If you gain everything in the world by valuing everything in the world over the value you place on Christ, what have you gained? Psalm 49 says, you cannot ransom yourself. No matter how much you have, it won't be enough. It's not enough. But that, that thing with Christ, I don't know how to express it, but <clears throat> when I am reading the Word of God, and I'm studying the Word of God, and, and I'm sitting in uh, uh, Buell, Idaho, in an office, and I'm looking at a screen or got several books opened up and I'm, I'm just really seeking understanding of God's word and what God's doing. There are times where God meets me right there. And I feel like he's sitting right beside me and he's guiding my pen and he's opening my understanding and there's nothing like it. I wouldn't trade that for nothing. Experiencing the revealing or the revelation of God in my life as God opens his revelation of himself through his word to me. The good news is it's not just preachers he does that to. He does that to anybody who wants to open his word and know him. There he is to reveal himself, to open up the word, to open up our understanding. But there's nothing like that. I don't want all the stuff in the world and trade that. Because that's just a little tiny sliver of joy that I get to experience here that promises a great big eternity in understanding the glories of Christ yet to come. And I don't want to trade the world for that. I don't even want to trade a Harley for that. I don't want to trade none of my stuff. Take it. Knock yourself out. Feel free to let everybody know my house is never locked. As it's, it, maybe I'm dumb. I have never locked my house. I never lock my truck. If my truck's locked, here's what you can guarantee. Kathy was driving it. <laughs> but if I was driving it, it's not locked. The front door, we sleep, the front door open. What do you have your house, I like it. <laughs> At 1108 East 3900 North. Just come on by. <laughs> the door is open. You're always welcome. My stuff, my stuff don't matter to me that much. My stuff, head on over there, Noe. We'll see you later. My, my stuff don't matter that much to me. I don't want to gain the world 
and lose my soul. I don't want to trade that. I don't want to trade the, the desire for, for this place and this world. But there's a lot of people who would say, I want that. I want this thing, this sin, this part of my nature. I want that more than I want Christ. And so I'm going to try to make my life in such a way so I can add Christ without having to give up this. And that's what's currently going on in our world right now. I don't want to have to repent and turn and go to Christ. I want to have both. And what Jesus is declaring here is you don't get both. You get the world or you get him. One or the other. Now the next one we have is the or. Remember three fours and an or. What's the or? The or is... Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is a rhetorical question that demands a statement. And the statement that it demands is this. There is nothing you can give for your soul. There's nothing you can give for your soul. You can't have enough to buy it. You can't live good enough to, to achieve a relationship with Christ. Look, here's what some people do. Some people think, yeah, you know what? I'm a sinner. I'm bad. I'm not very good. I'm going to go to church and get spiritual, and then God will receive me. That's not how that works. It's not by works that we have done. It's what he has done. It's our faith, placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's what he has done for you and me. What he has finished, we lay hold of. We say, thank you. I can't buy it myself. I can't be good enough. I can't read the Bible enough. I can't pray enough. I can't do enough good things to ransom my soul. It is something that Christ does for me through his death, burial, and resurrection. And me placing my faith and my trust in him. And then we have the last four. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here when he talks about being ashamed, he's talking about a settled disposition, not a lapse of courage. It means a life marked by the fact that I'm ashamed by the things that Jesus Christ said. I'm ashamed by the death, burial, and resurrection. I'm ashamed by his teachings and what he calls me to. And really, there's a lot of people in the so-called church today that feel that way. They're ashamed by a lot of stuff in here. And so they say, you know, let's just, let's just cut out most of this. So we don't need it. it it's, it's got a lot of uh, stuff in it, but you know what? It's, it's not really for the day, for the time. It needs a revision. We can't have a revision. It's a settled disposition those who are ashamed of me and my teaching, I'll be ashamed of them when I come. When I come, I'll be ashamed. It, it describes the lack of relationship. If you're embarrassed of me, if you're embarrassed by the, the price of salvation, if you're embarrassed by what I did, by the fact that God came to die for you, if you can't be proud Proud of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Proud of who he is for you and what he has done for you. If you would rather be numbered with the goats than the sheep. Then you will be numbered with the goats and not the sheep. The call is 
The word of God is not to be changed by you and I to fit our lives. Our lives are to be changed by the word of God. By allowing the word of God to do a work in and through us. But then as we look at the last scripture we'll look at this morning, Mark 9.1, he's still talking to them. (laughs) They start a new chapter, but Jesus isn't done talking. It says in, the, in this verse, it says, And he, so he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present or present with power. Till they see the kingdom of God and the power of the kingdom of God. Some of you aren't going to die. The people have been arguing over this verse forever. It's where you get all kind of different views about the kingdom. Um, um, so... I believe it's settled by what happens next in chapter 9. You have the transfiguration where Christ reveals himself in power to, uh, to the disciples, Peter, James, and John, who are with him. <clears throat> and, I, and I think it's settled a lot in that. But I think there's more to it. There's more to it because I want you to look at the context of the chapter. Remember we started with a guy who was blind, who Jesus healed in stages. Then you have the example of the disciples whose understanding or comprehension of what or who Jesus is and what he came to do is growing. It's being developed. There's a, a, a progress that's happening. And then you see the work that Christ come to do, that he came to die. So I think currently as we look through and we look at the kingdom of God spoken of by Daniel, uh, even in Daniel chapter 2, beginning the concept of the kingdom of God, as we, as we look at the kingdom of God, what you see is the kingdom of God beginning in weakness. It begins with a crucifixion. Nobody sounds a trumpet and, and shouts the victory for that. But then comes what? The resurrection. What do we see in the resurrection? Power. A moving from weakness to power. A moving from uh, uh, moderate understanding or limited understanding to fuller understanding. You guys get what I'm saying? It kind of follows in the context of the chapter that the, the kingdom of God begins in weakness, but it's going to be moving forward in power. And I just, I just want you to, I just want you to see it. I, I believe that Jesus Christ is going to have a literal fulfillment of the kingdom. He's going to sit on the throne of David. His feet are going to touch the earth and he's going to be here for a thousand years. Everybody doesn't agree with me. It's okay. I've told you before, I don't mind if you want to be wrong. It's okay. However, <laughs> however, as we look at that, I also want you to see, I want you to recognize that Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So there is a, a, a relationship with the kingdom of God, where the kingdom of God came with Christ, and that it is... Moving forward to power. There will be a day when Jesus Christ calls his church to be with him. And our opportunity to be witness for him will be over. So we better get cracking. We got a job to do. And then there will be a time when Jesus Christ comes back to set up his earthly kingdom. And he sets up that earthly kingdom. And forward and forward we go. Now, people in the church disagreed about this forever. And we're not going to solve it by sitting here and listening to me right now. But what I want you to recognize is, it doesn't matter which view you have. The point is the idea that the kingdom of God begins small and grows. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel said the rock came down and smote the feet. You remember? Smote the feet of the statue. And that rock did what? Grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth. Right? The growing 
of the kingdom of God. There's going to be a culmination when Christ comes, puts his feet on the ground. The kingdom is here. Boom. We're, we're part and parcel with what God's doing. But it, there's a progression that takes place. And we have the, the awesome opportunity to be here now. And this time when the world is turning its back on Christ. And we have an opportunity to go therefore under the authority of Christ, who's been given all authority on heaven and earth, and he says, go and tell them the gospel. Go make disciples. Go watch the world be changed. Go watch lives be changed. Don't sit and think about what's been lost. You can't do nothing if we do that. When I coached football, I never told guys, sit around and think about the fumble you just had. You fumbled the ball? I just want you to concentrate on fumble. You fumbled the ball. And you just keep telling yourself what a knucklehead you are because you fumbled the ball. Do you know what that leads to? More fumbles. A downward spiral of success. So what, what do we do? We say, forget those things which lie behind. Press on. Press on to the upward call of Christ Jesus. Yeah, the church has lost ground and the world is in a downward spiral. But our job hasn't changed. Go to all the world and proclaim the gospel. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom, in, in a sense, the kingdom is here in you, in me, in the church as we move forward. And the opportunity to bring more people in. And allow more people to be a part. And that will continue. Until the day we see Jesus face to face. Until we see him face to face, we have a job to do. We have a, a, a role to fulfill. Jesus is going to reveal himself in the very next chapter. He's going to take off the veil and he's going to allow the glory of God to come through him. A great proclamation of the deity of Christ that we'll see next week. And the disciples who come, they get to see the power of the kingdom in Christ before we see the power of the kingdom here. But the power's coming. The power's promised. And our role remains the same. Tell Tell them. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. I don't know how many days we got. I don't know how much time we have. And it doesn't matter. Tell them. Tell them. Don't be ashamed of Christ and what he's done. Be proud of, of what he's done in the work of salvation. Be proud of the gospel. Be able to go forward and share the good news. The good news that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. That day will come. But Jesus commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. And that message needs to continue to go forth from our lips until the day he calls us home. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for the opportunity that we have, Lord Jesus, to study your word, to, to open your word, and prayerfully allow your word to change us from the inside out. God, that we might be those who are willing to proclaim that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To tell people our God story about how God met us in a place where we were lost in our, in our transgressions, in our sin. But he paid the ransom so that we might be made whole, so that we might be made complete, so that we might have salvation. And he calls all men everywhere. The blood of Jesus Christ is able to save anyone, anywhere, who is willing to repent and believe. So God, I pray, Lord, that that would be our desire. 
Perhaps many of us here this morning have a relationship with Christ. If so, Lord, I pray that we would go and share that good news that Jesus Christ has wrought. To be willing to say, to tell of the greatest gift ever given. But also perhaps this morning there are folks that are here today who have not begun a relationship with you. And that relationship does not require some crazy lists of do's and don'ts. It simply requires that confession, the homologeo, the willingness to repent and turn from our sin and turn to Christ and say, you are who your word says you are. And I believe and I trust you for my salvation. I put my faith in you. I turn from my sin and ask that you would give me the strength for the journey that lies before me. And I cling to who you are. For you are able to save. God, I pray that your spirit would move in this place, that hearts would be turned, that lives would be changed. And God, as we move toward a time, as we close in worship, I just want to invite people that are in need of making that proclamation to Christ, of giving their life to Him. There will be prayer counselors available up front, and they want to pray with you, and they want to introduce you to the Savior of all the world. They also want to pray with you. If you're going through a hard time or you're having struggles being victorious in your walk with Christ, they want to encourage you and pray for you in that way as well. And above all things, Lord God Almighty, we want to walk out these doors and exalt the name of Jesus Christ wherever we go. There are a lot of people here in this town who don't know you. And they need to. There are a lot of people in this county that don't know you, but they need to. There's a lot of people in this state and in this nation that don't know you, but they need to. And so, God, you are calling us with an attitude of revival to allow the work of God to begin in our hearts and then to go forward. And as you give us that opportunity, God, we have a Somebody Loves You crusade coming, Lord, and you give us opportunity to take a card, to write five names on it, to pray for them, to share Christ with them, and to allow the work of God to begin, even as we look forward to the, to the crusade, to see souls saved by our willingness to be a part. We don't need uh, an evangelist to lead us while uh, you do call evangelists to go. All we need is the willingness to be faithful, to pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes and to share the truth. And you will do the work. God, you are calling us, your church, to see our communities changed. To see the love of Christ go forward. So that one day, we can all proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that your spirit would move in this place as we lay it out before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.